Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, when we talk about bringing you thought leaders in the ag space, Dr. Pam Marone, our guest today, is a fantastic example. Dr. Marone spent her 30-plus year career focused on biological products for pest management and plant health, having started and led three bioag companies. She's a scientist, a CEO, a serial entrepreneur, a pioneer, and that's just the short list. In her words, she says she got hooked on microbes early on and spent her career looking for environmentally responsible, biologically-based solutions. By the end of this podcast, I'm pretty sure you're going to be hooked on microbes too. So let's just jump right in. Welcome to this edition of the Ag Emerge podcast. Uh, Very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Pam Marone today. Hi, Pam. Thanks for being a part of the podcast. Well, great to be here. Thank you. Well, it's exciting. Uh, I've uh, known uh, Dr. Marone and her work, known of her and her work for probably 10, 15 years and what she's done with Marone Bioinnovations and and several of the other things she's involved with. We've met each other in ag tech circles, uh, passing in hallways and and those kind of things, but looking forward to get to spend a little bit of time with you today and get to know you better and and share your story with our audience. Always great to talk about uh, ag bio and ag tech. There you go. Well, it's certainly the the frontier in agriculture right now. And I just would like for you to uh, catch our listeners up to speed. Tell us your story, uh, how you got started and and where you've come to today and a little bit of the the why behind it. What motivates you to do what you do? Well, I'm going to go way back. So I'm here at my mom's today in Southern Connecticut, grew up on 40 acres in beautiful uh, woods and a two acre bass fishing and swimming pond and a little mini farm. And so I got interested in bugs majored in entomology, um, and then was recruited uh, to Monsanto company. And on the ground floor, uh, they were transitioning the company from a chemical company to a bio company. And I was, a, I was asked to start up a new unit looking for new ways to control pests and ended up screening microorganisms. Now, this, this is back in like 1983. So this is way ahead of my time. So we yeah. screened hundreds and thousands of microorganisms and, and developed the first high throughput screening mechanisms that are um, in a corn rootworm uh, artificial diet to do it that is still in use today. So I got hooked on microbes back then and spent my career looking for microbes and natural substances to control pests and increase plant growth. So after Monsanto, I was recruited by Denmark-based Novo Nordisk to start up a company in Davis, California. Uh, So moved from St. Louis to uh, Davis and uh, set up Entotech to screen microbes looking for natural products and screened over 50,000 microbes. And, and they sold us to our largest competitor when they had, uh, which is now Valent Biosciences, when they had some issues in their core insulin business. And I started up AgriQuest in 95 and uh, discovered Serenade and Sonata line of products that are now standards and uh, in, in, their, in, in the biofungicide realm. And uh, I left in 2006 to start up Marone Bioinnovations and 
as many know that uh, AgriQuest was sold in 2012 to Bayer Crop Science for almost 500 million. And I uh, had already started up Marone Bio, took it public in 2013. And uh, then after almost 15 years, um, stepped down as CEO, and uh, uh, which is a long run. And, um, and now I am advising, I'm still on the board, but I'm also advising many startups um, from farm to fork and also some life science pharma companies as well. Well, what a journey. That's amazing. And, and if you're doing that back in 1983, that was, I mean, what were the tools you were working with? Did you have DNA sequencing that you could use or, or I mean, no, it was very no. primitive. You're looking at what, uh, <laughs> no. probably Petri dishes or, or. Uh, oh yeah. Petri dishes. Propagated. Well, I was at Monsanto when they transformed the first lump of plant cells, tobacco and petunia with a BT protein. So it was way, way back then. And See, in, in um, AgriQuest, we discovered Serenade in probably 95, 96 timeframe, which is a, a, was identified as a bacillus subtilis back then because we didn't have um, the, the, the sequencing tools. So it has been since reclassified to a bacillus amylo liquefactions. So um, yeah, the, it's, it's interesting. Um, the, the, the technology has changed so dramatically um, during the course of my career. And that's what makes it very exciting today because biologicals enabled by today's technologies, genomics, bioinformatics, um, and um, uh, fermentation science, synthetic biology, gene, gene editing, whatever, is, is allowing uh, products to become better and better and better, and, and farmers are getting more and more information about how these products work. It is interesting. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now, back to our show. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the biocontrol world, as an example, that's, that's kind of, you know, now it's, you're expanding into the plant uh, nutrition yeah. side too, but how do they work? You know, uh, you know, and, and what, what is behind them all and, and why that's so important for today? Well, there's two kinds of biocontrol organisms. There's ones that are living and then that like bacteria or fungi that colonize the plant, the roots, and and can um, have multi modes of action and can colonize through the season and ward off pests, or in, increase the plant's immune system, um, compete with the with the pathogens or, or insects. Then there's ones like <clears throat> Marone Bio has typically focused on, although we do have some living, um, and that is uh, microbes that are dependent on the product is dependent on the metabolites or the compounds, the natural compounds excreted or made by the microorganism or in a plant, in the case of a plant extract. And then you're relying on really natural compounds um, instead of synthetically made, they're made in fermentation and a whole, instead of one single chemical, like a synthetic chemical, there'd be a suite of compounds because microbes and plants make whole cocktails of compounds. And then we optimize those uh, compounds in fermentation or, manuf or manufacturing extraction in the case of a plant so that every batch that you make has a specific level of those compounds that control the pest. 
So the, the modes of actions of biologicals are, are often very different from chemicals. They could be a lot slower. They could stop feeding or um, stop feeding right away, but not kill the bug right away and, uh, or, or affect the plant um, and the, the, the plant's uh, ability to uh, you know, be healthier, affect the immune system. So it's a, you have to look at uh, the system more holistically and not just count dead bugs when you're looking at biologicals versus chemicals. Because you're also deterring pests, you're, yes. you're maybe interrupting uh, uh, mating, you're... And molting, yeah, interrupting molting, mating, like in the pheromones, interrupting cycle. molting in the case of Marone Bios products, uh, venerate in the case of, of Grand Evo feeding. So yeah, so the, the, the modes of actions are very different. And to, unfortunately, there's still a false comparison because they'll the, a lot of folks will test a, a chemical and say, you know, after 48 hours, oh, how many dead bugs are there? And compare it to the biological and say, oh, the biological didn't work. But that is a false comparison because if you look at marketable yield, mm -hmm. uh, if you look at quality of the crop, the farmer's return on investment, uh, that's where the ability to export without residue concerns and get back into the field faster, you know, these, these types of things um, are what makes biologicals shine. And so again, you can't just look at how many dead bugs after 48 hours? But unfortunately, that's still off in the comparison. So, I mean, early on when you were doing this, Pam, how, how, what was that like to really retrain the industry what to look at? Not only were you dealing with researchers, but with all the PCAs, you know, yep. they're looking for dead bugs and such. You're, yep. you're saying, okay, may not have the dead bugs, but the bugs aren't doing the damage uh, or they've, they've right. on or they're not reproducing, those kind of things. What were some of the, to shift that paradigm, what, what was that like? And what were some of the frustrations you had to deal with in that? You have the right word, and that is shifting the paradigm, because it was so long ago when we discovered Serenade, and uh, and 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 folks would say, you know, compare it side by side to a chemical fungicide, which was systemic, and Serenade was preventative, and say, well, it doesn't work. And I say, well, let's look at integrated programs. So shifting the mindset from uh, standalone to integrated programs, and that's where it is, it, where where we had to shift the paradigm way back when, and still shifting. It's not completely finished yet. There's still folks looking at um, standalone um, versus integrated programs. So when you integrate the biologicals in with the chemical solutions, you know, so you, for resistance management, so you can delay development of resistance or at the end of the season for residue management or in the beginning to get a hold of the population uh, before it builds up. Um, and then some in between for resistance management. So when you use these products in integrated programs, there's often a synergy in that the program overall is better than the chemical only program. We showed that time and time again. So I did a heck of a lot of grower demos. I remember sending the sales guy in Northern California out to um, get serenade um, on the farm in grape growers. And he dropped off a bag and I paid him a hundred dollars a demo. And so he did, um, he, he, he ended up doing 50 demos. So he made a lot of money and, uh, but just getting it out so people could see, okay, do a block here with our product integrated into um, your program, to your traditional program. And, and let's see the results. And that generally works how we, that, that works every time. And that's how you get the adoption. Yeah. And, and plus it's, there is a dynamic to it because it is a system with a biological control that, uh, you know, whether plant growth stage, plant nutritional status, uh, irrigation status, all those things can create a few more nuances in the repeatability effect. Right. So, I mean, that's there, right. 
there's some things that have to go into consideration there where you that's might right. have the guy that's like, well, it didn't work this time. Well, we had, there was three other things that didn't line up. So, well, um, consistency is really critical. And, right. um, you know, th there's some organic, organic growers have fewer solutions and let's, let's take brown rot in stone fruit in California. Okay. A tough, a tough one. And, you know, the growers will tell me, well, you know, if you have a product that is 65% percent at reducing brown rot, and it's and it's and it's that every time I'll take that, you know, I'll take that consistency rather than, you know, 90% one time than 50% another time. And so, so it's that consistency that's really important and uh, understanding the product and how to use it can certainly reduce the variability and, and, and make it more consistent for sure. Yeah. So those are the pioneering days and you've got a lot of understanding now, especially like you said, with genomics and, and uh, DNA mapping and everything that we can do today. We have so many more tools to where biologicals can be developed so much quicker. What, I mean, that's kind of history. Where do you see this all heading in the future? What paint, paint the picture of, uh, uh, you know, the next five to 10 years with biological controls and or biological nutrition um, or other ways that biologicals are going to impact agriculture? Well, I think we're going from a chemical intensive agriculture to a bio intensive agriculture. So right now it's, you know, chemicals as the base of the program and dial in biologicals where, where you can't use chemicals, like I said, at the end of the season, or you need to manage resistance or what have you. And I, and I see us going to a, a biologicals as the base of the program, and then only using reduced risk chemicals uh, uh, when you need to. And uh, I, that's, I think that's, that's where the consumer is driving it. And, and the, the, because the products are getting better and better with the tools, the scientific tools that we have today, uh, they, they, you don't have to, growers don't have to sacrifice on, on efficacy and consistency with biologicals. So, you know, we're going to have biologicals that, and we do fix nitrogen and can replace and reduce chemical fertilizers and, and uh, boost plant growth and biostimulants and biologicals that boost plant growth. And what I see is that farmers are, start, are asking now, what does your product do to my soil? Because soil health now USDA, NRCS, and so many NGOs and everybody focused on soil health and carbon sequestration, reducing carbon footprint of agriculture. So farmers are saying, when I go out, they're saying, well, what, what does that product do to my soil microbiome? And I'm like, wow, they're asking that question. So it's gonna be just a standard practice that you as an input supplier is gonna to have to know what your product does to a farmer's soil. And uh, they're gonna start comparing the micro profile before and after and the micro profile of your product uh, after it's used compared to your competitors. That's really where it's going. And what's exciting is that I'm seeing results from Marone Bios products and other uh, products of companies I'm advising that are having a really positive influence on the soil uh, health and microbiome. For example, one company that has a biofertilizer has shown um, that uh, they can increase the microbes that um, take up nitrogen in the plant, help the plant take up nitrogen. They can also uh, increase the microbes that sequester carbon. Well, this is fantastic, one-two punch. In addition, the product also increased the biocontrol fungi in the soil that were responsible for controlling nematodes. Wow, one-two-three punch. So these are the kinds of data that we're getting and uh, very exciting. But where we really ultimately need to get to is that Farmers will get payments, carbon credits for using biologicals. So now they're going to, we're at the cusp of this with cover crops and crop rotation 
and other um, you know, sustainable or regenerative practices. But uh, we, we have the data now, there's no question the data is coming out that using uh, biologicals, whether it's a biofertilizer, bionutrition product, a bioprotection, biopesticide product or a biostimulant, have the positive benefits on reducing carbon footprint. And so farmers need to get paid for doing that. And I think that will certainly um, dramatically increase the adoption of these types of products. That's a great, great point. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. Or uh, I want to dive into it a little bit deeper. And you said, you know, about the soil health. And when you think about it, how many things have we learned about on the chemistry side of things that now 20 years later, there's a lot of unintended consequences, right? So right. we have some soil health related issues. We have some human health related issues to a very popular metal chelator. Uh, you know, there's other groundwater issues with uh, various, uh, you know, other chemistries we use for herbicides. Uh, there's issues with insects, with the neonic uh, families. And, you know, all of those kind of are unintended consequences. You know, the fun part is, is what we hear with the biological base controls, because it's, it's basically using modern energy. It's allowing a natural system to assimilate it in, in the way that is best for that natural system. You're getting these unintended benefits, you know, like, That's right. saying, you know, yes, we control the pest, but all of a sudden, yes, we're auxiliary controlling a, a, a fungicide or a fungal species that's negative, which thereby is improving soil, probably bulk density, aeration, those kind of things. That's right. That's what do right. you, um, what are the risks in, in your professional opinion of the unintended consequence thing, you know, where let's say 20 years from now, we get a lawsuit handed down and, you know, billions of dollars are paid out. Uh, what is the risks with bio biological controls versus what we've done here in the past with chemi chemistry based controls? You know, what, what I, uh, what I'm, I say to that, to that question is that, so biological, the first biological pesticide was BT and it came out, oh gosh, it's gotta be 70 years ago. And, and so we have, and we have a very well-regulated system at the EPA and it's, and it is a tiered risk process. So uh, that, that um, has served us extremely well, but these products are very biodegradable. So it, it's a, it's very, I, I just don't see cases where, um, you know, where these products persist and, and now, now, if you have living microbes, they may stay in the soil and persist over the next season. But what the data is showing is that plants recruit microbes and those consortia of microbes uh, that are associated with plants often can be pretty stable. There is an environment and genetic interaction, plant and environment for sure. But more and more, breeders are going to have to look at what they're doing on breeding because it's the plant that's signaling the mic microbes. So companies that are providing products that, um, you know, biologicals that microbes to the soil, living soil during the season, a lot of times those are temporary benefits. So you got a boost in yield and quality, but the soil, the, the microbiome often goes back to where it was before. So, right. um, so far we're not seeing that there's these kind of unintended consequences. Um, nature seems to have its way of doing things and uh, we can supplement that to a certain degree but not, not dramatically shift uh, the patterns that are there. And that's a good thing because I, there just have not been, um, you know, any, any single bad consequence of a biological in 70 years. So I think that's a very important point for consumers to know. And also farmers will be uh, reassured by that too. 
And that's why I wanted you to, to make that. And I, I would also say that, you know, the, the thing is, is when you look at biologicals, you know, one teaspoon of soil containing 6 billion microorganisms, and you take that across the acre and you take the diversity of the microorganisms that exist in that soil. And oftentimes, you know, some of the earlier companies that are out there selling uh, this one bug, um, you know, is great to grow your crop or these four bugs are great. And I, I just kind of chuckle sometimes uh, because I'm thinking there's billions upon billions of organisms. And we think that in our vain human mind that, you know, a couple of them are going to change. Now, that is getting better these days as we as we learn specific things that we can inoculate in certain ways. But yes. I mean, in the early days, that was kind of hit or miss. And, and a lot of times it was, was because there's a lot of bugs in the jug. Yeah. There are a lot of bugs in the jug or bathtub brews as I call them. Yeah. And someone providing, you know, bugs in a jug and saying, this is the best brew and it's going to help you. And it may have, but the science is showing that, um, that there's, you know, you, you may not need, you may not need to have 500 microbes in your jug to do it. You know, there's a minimum functional level of microbes that's doing the doing the thing in the soil and and uh, as i said I, I looked across studies of of strawberry corn soy brassica uh and a couple others where it's the plant that the plant that the variety the, of plant the the genotype of the plant that is actually recruiting the microbes so you can change somewhat and definitely no question in season you can change and have a benefit to the crop growth with your uh, consortium or even single microbes uh, for sure but um at the end of the day um uh you know there's 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 a lot more we have to unravel and like you said there we're at the just very early stages of discovering there's so much more out in the microbiology world we haven't really discovered yet. I mean, it's amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, we, had, we had the pleasure of Dr. James White being on the podcast early, but he also presented at our very first Ag Emerge conference. And just that groundbreaking research him and his team came up with that plants are propagating microbes and sending them into the soil to get nutrients to bring them back. It's like all of a sudden the plant isn't just this helpless thing sitting there hoping that's right happens to it the plant is controlling the biome and it just blows your mind and as we keep gaining those understandings i think we'll get better and better in product development and assist and breeding plant breeding right yeah. because what are we breeding for now and this okay you, you got me caught on something here, Pam. Uh, I get so, so upset because all of our breeding is done on flat black soils. Uh, I'm talking corn, soybean world now in the, in the corn belt, or you can talk in especially crops. It's always in the most perfect conditions. It's tilled to nine ways that it more than what it should be. The nutrient levels are on overload. Exactly. It in all of this and great. We are selecting plants that are great for that system. Now exactly. Do a nutrient reduced strategy like we recommend in no-till, in, uh, you know, more, not marginal, but in tougher conditions. And those, those plants just don't perform at the level if they would have been selected and bred for those. So that's right. And the good news is of, that, yeah, the good yeah. news is that we're because everyone's becoming aware of this and there's companies popping up to now breed for a, a more a more regenerative system uh, where they're we're going to be incorporating uh, cover crops and and your and breeding varieties that don't need as much um, are not built for for so much chemical fertilizer so so you can't it can allow them to um, not be so lazy and they'll start recruiting the microbes again yeah and one other thing I think that to unpack on what you said there is about the consumers and uh, consumers are really driving for pesticide free chemical free type 
uh, agriculture. Um, you know, and, and I think something else that the consumers are driving for is the non-GMO um, status of it too. So there's, there's some interesting things with the biocontrols that allow us to really kind of move away from all those things. Don't yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, we're not there yet. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of them are on bioproducts and others are used on top of, you know, traded Correct. products and, uh, and, and so can, can enhance those. But uh, um, you're right. The, the, the consumer is certainly driving that. And every time you, you, you see a, a survey from consumers and it drives agricultural scientists crazy and farmers crazy because consumers don't don't care so much about the science they speak to their values mm-hmm. and you know they don't like chemicals so that 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 becomes a problem you know for traditional ag but but um um you know what we do in the biological industry is we're, we're we, we like to, to to highlight the benefits of our products um in the in, in an integrated system and uh you know we're, we're at one point in time on the shift to a more you know, ecologically based biointensive program. And, uh, you know, we're, we're moving that continuum along the way. Yeah. And I, I think that's important because at the end of the day, we have to be responsible to our customer, right? And if, if that's what they want, then as farmers, as, as uh, you know, uh, industry, we need to give the customer what they want, right or wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but talking a little bit about um, as you were you know, the businesses that's where you're in, in your own business. And you had to pioneer many things in regulations that probably didn't even oh, yeah. regulation <laughs> for. Oh yeah. Okay. And, and navigate that as a, okay. As a startup company and all the proof that you'd have to do for EPA and other, other related concerns, what kind of impact did that have on your ability to innovate and, and what is good regulation? What is, what is, obnoxious and and how does all that balance come in as we move into a bio uh, related world yeah it was it was really difficult to to navigate to get biologicals through some years ago and then there was the creation of the biopesticide pollution prevention division mm-hmm. and once once that was created then we had our own division but still it really was at the whims of who was running it um, and the appointees above uh, whether whether um, that was enforced or not, you know, or how it was managed. And so in 2001, um, our bio, it was called the Biopesticide Industry Alliance, which I started in 2000. It's now called the Bioproducts Industry Alliance. Um, got, I got together a group of founding companies and started this trade group, which is now going strong and it's added in biostimulants and in addition to biopesticides. We uh, joined up with the big ag chem companies and the enviro groups and got the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act PREA passed in 2001. And it's been reauthorized unanimously by Congress several more times to give a level of predictability to when products will get out the door. Now that changed depending on, again, who was running the show at the EPA. And we had a really tough time back in the in the recessionary times of 2008 when things just started coming to a halt. Um, and it was dire for co- small companies like ours where you're trying to get your product out the door. So my, my board of directors, which was largely um, uh, venture capitalists said, Pam, I'm sorry, the fact that you can't get your product through regulatory is not a good, it's not a good excuse. I'm going like, uh, well, they said, well, go to Washington. I said, okay. So I hired a lobbyist. It was the best hundred thousand dollars I ever spent. And, uh, we had meetings. Um, so Feinstein staff and, um, 
Garamendi staff um, and Debbie Stabenos, because we have a plant in Michigan, um, uh, would, would, would sit in meetings um, with the EPA and, and the House Act Committee would call them up to the Hill and say, you know, why aren't you accelerating these types of biologicals? We want them accelerated. And so we worked out uh, a way to get them more. Because the Merlin Bio did have some pioneering products that were very different from what the agency had seen before, to be fair to the EPA. But at the same time, um, you know, it, it, it was slowed down such that that instead of 18 months, it would maybe take three to four years to get a biological that could kill a company. Mm -hmm. So um, we fixed the system. It was very lonely. Um, a lot of companies wouldn't would not join up with me because they were afraid of the backlash and getting EPA audits. And indeed, we got three EPA, EPA audits after that. And so um, but uh, the EPA staff was very happy with the changes because they wanted they wanted to get these things out the door. And it was a compromise between what the industry was gonna do and promise in having the and the type of things we put in our packages and the quality of the packages because the PREA law had some uh, wiggle room in how you put in those packages. Those, that wiggle room is gone. And so it's much more predictable process. So I tell entrepreneurs, hey, just because you have a barrier in front of you, I'm sorry, it's not a good enough excuse. You got to find a way to knock it down. Well, I, I was just going to say that I you you not only pioneered a a segment from the science side, okay, but you also pioneered on the business side how to get it to market. And congratulations to you. You really blazed the trail for very many future biological companies. Uh, I don't tell that story too often, but uh, I do know that some of the EPA staff who I see. Uh, former staff who I see from time to time are still a little bit bruised, but I think I think we've patched things up. <laughs> you go get them. I like it. <laughs> that is awesome. But uh, you know, and I think you know, farmers are like that too. They don't they don't give up easily, and and they keep on going. But you know, really, uh, they have to. That's their livelihood. That's but, right. And, and it was my livelihood. <laughs> well, a new segment and the pressures of the investors and and a small company, a startup, and you got to get to revenue. Uh, wow. I mean, that that's uh, it's pretty amazing what you did to get through that and navigate it. Plus the additional fundraising that would have been required as stuff gets. That's right. Out, you know. Keep, that's right to keep people uh, interested and, and keep adding on to it. So that's right. So talk to us a little bit about that side, the investor, what are, what are these uh, venture capitalists or other investors? What are they looking for? In, you know, and, and how do they, how did you, how did, how did you meet them? How did you make all that magic happen on the, on the investor relations side? It is so different today than it was back then. I mean, today there's a zillion, incubators and accelerators and all kinds of efforts to incubate and, and uh, cocoon, or cocoon and, and help advise um, startup entrepreneurs in ag and, and other others. And back then I was, I was all alone. So um, I actually, you know, being a PhD entomologist and I starting up AgriQuest, I said, well, how am I going to raise money? So I took a, I went to Silicon Valley big law firm, well-known Wilson Sonsini. I took a boot camp on how to raise money and they taught me what a term sheet was and what the, what the deal should be like. And, and the key, get a really good lawyer and uh, sure, which I did. And, um, and I, I started just, this is so funny because this was 95 and got to remember the internet wasn't going, I mean, we didn't have the big internet then. Okay. So Netscape was going public that year. So I had hard copy books. 
California Venture Capital Association and National Venture Capital Association. And the young people laugh when I show them this big book. So I flipped through the pages and I yellow lined all the different venture capitalists that I thought would be interested in my business. And, um, and I called them cold. And I called Don Valentine from Seven Rosen Funds. He's since retired. And he was like, the, I had no idea. He was like a god in the VC world. He was so nice. And she's like, who's this? Probably was thinking, who's this crazy woman calling me out of the blue? But he said, well, we don't invest in that. But I do know somebody who does. And he introduced me to the chairman of Calvert Social Investments. Calvert is the is a very big set of mutual funds, one of the very original um, ESG funds, environmental social governance funds. And he they had a venture capital arm. And he said, well, Pam, you're not a year old yet, AgriQuest. So come back when you're past your year time frame. So I know you're still in business. And then you can pitch our social venture network. And I said, what's that? Is it's a group of like about 200 investors who are interested in environmentally responsible, socially responsible, and women and minority-led businesses. Wow, that was a way ahead of their time in 95. So I did, I went to Chicago in um, 1996, pitched um, the business, and lo and behold, there was somebody from Rockefeller and Company that had a fund that was dedicated to ESG investing, and they led our first round. This was, by the way, after I started up with friends and family money and my own money and the seed money. And then Series A raised close to $4 million and then $60 million later um, after that. But it's a lot of hard work. You're a salesperson. You need a sales pipeline of investors. And you know, um, young young entrepreneurs will come to me today, and they've got they 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 plan six months to raise their 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 Series A, and I'm going, are you kidding me? So it it, it takes a lot longer, and takes much more work than they ever think it it is it, it will be. And it is a pipeline management kind of thing. So the more investors you talk to, the more likely you're going to find ones that invest. So that that's that I, I work work really hard. So that's how I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, another amazing part of your story. And uh, I, I hope everybody hears this. So one of the things that's very interesting to me is making that transition from the research, you know, technologist, okay, to the business uh, CEO, and also to the, the chief sales, you know, you're the chief everything officer, right? Yeah. The yeah. So you're selling the product, you're selling the investor, you're selling a team to come work with you to further develop the products, you're selling the government. I mean, you you had a five-sided sale, really, to make, make exactly. it all happen. One of the things I see with a lot of startups is they are started by the, the engineer, the technician type. And it's very, very difficult for that person to, to have a business mind and, and that, that salesperson uh, mind. What, what advice would you have with them? How, how do you, is it, do they have it or they don't? Or is there certain things you had to uh, study and, and really dive in on to, to get that extra element to make it work? You know, I, I actually think you have it or you don't. I know, I don't know if Harvard Business School will say that's true. <laughs> You know, the, the MBAs of the world will say that's true, but I think some of it can be taught like how to network or mm-hmm. how to sell yourself or things like that. But I actually, I, I advise a lot of entrepreneurs and I've met a lot of entrepreneurs in my life and I am one and I really think you have it or not. And, and what it is, is getting out there. It is being the chief salesperson. And if you can't be the chief salesperson, now you can be trained to 
move your language from too technical because in the early days i was told i was too technical and you know if you're too technical and you use all the jargon instead of dumbing it down to you know sixth grade level um you know you 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 can be taught to do that but getting yourself out there finding a network finding people networking networking like crazy and finding uh people to help you those really kind of you have to like to do it you have to like to raise money i always tell you know entrepreneurs if you're the ceo and founder you have the title of ceo it's your job to raise the money don't expect somebody else to do it for you and if you don't like being that salesperson then then you have the wrong job you shouldn't you shouldn't be ceo maybe you would like to be cso you know or cto and so for me because i have the phd it was kind of a noose around my neck just simply because I had the PhD, I was pigeonholed and I hadn't been in the lab. So my boss at Monsanto took me out of the lab after year one and said, you're meant to be a manager. Not that I did bad science, but, uh, but uh, you know, that was my personality. So I hadn't been in the lab since 1985, yet I had investors saying, well, you should be CTO. I go, I don't know how I would do that. I have teams for that. So, um, so I had to work especially hard to change my language, to talk like I knew something about the market and business. And nowadays, the good news is when they have these incubators and National Science Foundation, i program, everything, they, they have the entrepreneurs talk to customers. And there's nothing better than learning the language of business by talking to your customer. So Pharonim, one com- company I advised, went through iCore, 100 customers we had to talk to uh, as the industry mentor. I tagged, I, well, I opened my Rolodex and, and they talked to a lot of customers. And fan- that's fantastic for the entrepreneur to listen to what the customer is saying instead of just being technology focused. So key point to those startups that are listening in on this podcast is that if you, like you said, if you aren't the person who wants to raise the money, you need to probably have a co-founder or, or a team that's designated to, to do that because that is definitely a part of your, your future. And, um, I, I know a lot of engineers, it's tough to make that, that business, you know, transition or the, when they're technical. So yeah, some will, some won't, as I said, I, I see quite a lot that will, but, uh, you're right. Not everyone. I have, I have a couple that I don't think going to make it either. So, so that's, you know, Steve Blank popularized it. You mentioned I-Core, uh, those kind of things. Talk to your customers and ask them open-ended questions, trying to get a feel for the market, the business model canvas and all that fun stuff. Uh, and you mentioned incubators that you're involved with. And I think there's one incubator that uh, you're uh, a partner with in, uh, in uh, just outside of Davis there. And you Back start. There yeah. you go, Ag Start. Tell us about Ag Start and the incubator and those kind of things. And, and the, you also referenced Fairnim that uh, you and I are involved with. So uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, you mentioned at one time incubators did not exist when you were doing what you do. No, now they no, exist. No. What are they for? How do they help uh, ag technology companies get going? Well, there's two sides of the incubators like Ag Start. So there's advising on the business aspects, and then there's actually a lab. And so what we were lacking in the uh, greater Sacramento region was actually a, a lab incubator for startups. So John Sellup, who's, uh, st- who really is the, the force behind AgStart, has done an amazing job of being able to get, get uh, real estate company uh, for the building and, and donors to help help build the uh, the lab at Act Start, and that's where Ferronim is now, and several other companies. Of uh, one Turtle Tree Labs, just uh, using um, making milk milk uh, milk proteins um, in fermentation, just got a lot raised a lot of money. There's some really cool companies there, and so 
um, like so what what the what what whether it's indie bio or yield lab or 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 agstart um there's there's the key to these incubators is um providing that network of professionals that can help the startup go faster and so because investors want to see you know it's it's and, and you asked about what investors want well they're Chris they want to return on their investment and it's really hard in ag because it's such a much longer, uh, a longer cycle time. And so adapting the typical metrics for a VC fund for tech, IT, software, et cetera, is not going to work for ag. But these accelerators can help um, you get past um, you know, the early phase faster and, and scale faster with, with the professional network around and introductions to investors, how to write, make your pitch deck, how to pitch. Um, how, how to how to um, uh, do your how to do go to market strategy? Talk to your customers. This is where um, incubators and accelerators are really helpful. So um, we'll dive in a little bit on the Faradim, which um, I had an opportunity to, to be a part of with you. Um, they're a company in this accelerator, and they're probably facing a lot of the challenges that you saw when you were getting started. How do you do the regulations? This is a whole new space, right? Uh, you got the P- the PhD founder. You know how does how does she raise money and, and those kind of things? It's uh, does it kind of remind you of you a few years? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you the the best entrepreneurs are the are. And investors will tell you this, the best entrepreneurs are the coachable ones. You know, every entrepreneur is very strong headed because they wouldn't be an entrepreneur if you, if you weren't, but, but, but you have to listen to what other people are saying and, um, and be look, uh, it's like pattern recognition. You'll have one person say something and another one might say an opposite, but you talk to five people and there may be some, some patterns in what they're saying about your business. And you better listen to those you know, th- those patterns, um, and, and, cor- and, and adjust and, and course, course correct if needed. Yeah. Did you ever think, um, you know, in the future, when you're in the midst of it and growing your company and, and those kind of things, did you think that you'd be in this role of helping others in the future? And, and what's, what's that been like? How rewarding is it? Oh yeah, I did. I, 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 uh, I may be taking a temporary leave from being a founder. Um, <laughs> I still have a couple more ideas in Uh-oh. the future, um, but uh, um, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm not sure I want to be CEO anymore. I think I'll find a younger CEO and then I'll be executive chairman. But um, uh, I I love advising because I I can have a broad impact. If I can make one more entrepreneur in AgBio successful, then or even not just AgBio anywhere, um, and and particularly women entrepreneurs. Um, then, then I, it just gives me so much satis- satisfaction and I, I want to give back. Um, you know, so, so it, it really is, is a lot of fun right now advising. Yeah. I think that's interesting. And you make a great uh, point about women entrepreneurs. The agricultural industry is, uh, very male dominated, you know, I'm on the uh, retail side more. So, you know, the farmers male, many of the salespeople are male there, you know, that's changing over time. It is. Still, it's nowhere close to 50%. Um, what was that like for you on the, you know, manufacturer research development side uh, in, in what you've been through? And, and do you think that extra, um, that, that helped that fight in you to get to fight through all these things that you had to, had to make happen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I had, I definitely had something to prove, but I didn't think about it that much. You know, with, it was really funny because 
typically raising money, you know, to be at a venture fair in front of, you know, VCs or whatever, I'd be the only woman in the room. I stood out. So that helped. Um, you know, so, I, you know, being the only woman, I was definitely stood out. But with farmers, I have a PhD in entomology from NC State and an undergraduate from Cornell. So I came in with a lot of credibility also, and I can talk, um, you know, science and talk you know, and listen big time with, with farmers is listening to their problems and, 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 and do you have any solutions? And so I, I love talking to farmers. And so I, I never felt I had any, and the farm dogs always love me. There you go. <laughs> dogs always come up to me and, and, and slobber me. So, but you know, so, so uh, that, you know, I always had good, I always loved talking to farmers. And so, so that was really, really, and, and always made sure I'd spend a lot of my time as CEO of all the companies going out and talking to farmers. That's critical because that would then I'd bring that back to R and D or to sales and say, you know, you know, you have to listen to this because this is what the farmers are saying about our products and such and such. So, yeah. Well, that, that's interesting. And, and I think um, you would encourage any entrepreneurs, don't, don't let anything hold you back. You know, don't, you know, whatever your, your education, your, your sex, your, you know, background, anything like that, you know, anything's possible, right? I would, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And today is a fantastic time to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I was just talking to somebody who has worked for three venerable companies in the industry and was thinking about going off on her own. I talked to her yesterday and, um, she was describing why she wanted to. And she said, I just need to do it my way because I have this picture of the way I want a company to work. And I was like, bingo. See, it's not just about the science or the product. It's about the milieu, the culture, the values of the company. And so why do we become serial entrepreneurs? Because we get a company to a certain point, successful, whatever, but a company then gets to a certain size and it has a life of its own and it's no longer the founder having control. And so it takes a life that may be a little different than maybe what you originally wanted in culture. And so then you got to do it again to get it maybe to that near perfect again. And then again. And so, you know, she said, well, I just have this perfect ideal of what I want to do. I said, ah, 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 ah. you know, it, it may, it may not be perfect, but you maybe by maybe by your second or third time, you know, you might you might get it closer, but it's never going to be perfect to the ideal that you want because people are people. Yep. And and we're not perfect, are we? No. <laughs> <laughs> and you make mistakes. And my biggest mistakes have been in hiring people. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the key to key to success is um, uh, picking the right people, because really, you know, in the way you're describing that, uh, when you found a company, it's, it's like a child, you know, it's got your D DNA and fingerprint on it and you can get it set up and going, but eventually, you know, they grow into their own person. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. I've seen that with California Ag Solutions, it, you can still see our uh, Robin and I's fingerprint on it, but the longer it goes and Silas and his team and the leadership there, you see, you see it evolving and changing its, its own character. And, uh, I think it's great. You know, you, you see that you built something that can um, continue yeah. to grow and prosper and change, you know, because if one thing's for sure in California agriculture, it's change. So, no, well, there's no question there. And the farmers continue, <laughs> California with all its regulations and and uh, and lawsuits and consumer uh, folk push pressure and, and propositions and what have you. The farmers have to be the most innovative 
of anywhere. <laughs> it, it keeps it. It keeps it fun. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, they, they might not say that, but <laughs> fun like a hit to the head or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh we we had a little uh entrepreneurial bug uh, mentioned there what what's the next right thing for for pam and what what what's your future look like in in your work and your uh coaching and everything else what what's what's on the horizon well it's funny i joined the board of a anti-arthritis drug discovery company that's been was founded by the the gods in the field and discovered the biggest blockbuster drugs on the planet and you know some of them are in their 80s and they're still founding companies and so you know they said to me well pam you don't need to stop i mean (laughs) (laughs) so so i was like because i figured oh you know maybe i've done three and that's enough and and uh and then uh, it got me thinking that there's still a lot of a lot of problems to solve. And I do have, there's some really, really, I'm not going to reveal what it is, but there's some really, really technically difficult challenges that nobody wants to tackle because they're too hard technically, but I think I know how to solve them. And again, it's really tough being a CEO founder and, and the day to day is, is, is just so intensive. And, and I think maybe I'll find a, a younger um, woman entrepreneur and be CEO and then um, and then be executive chairman, so I can guide it based on what I think I, I know in terms of how to how to solve this. But uh, um, yeah, there's some still some big uh, big challenges on the uh, on how to convert um, more to more uh, land to biologicals and more organic land, more conventional land to organic. There's some big think problems to, to solve in there that I'd like to tackle. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's challenges with. Yeah, plant health and, and protection. There's challenges with uh, nutrient balance is one of the biggest challenges right. I see. And uh, and I think we need to look at it from not so much. Um, I, I think the technology is getting there too, to where we can look at it not what the practices were to produce the product, because you can have nutrient devoid, crappy tasting organic food. Okay. That's very true. Actually, you can have that's true. Dense, extremely safe, conventionally produced food. Okay? That's very but, true. Uh, so, and I think in, in a regenerative world, you see this happening too, where uh, savory and some others are going after the outcome based, uh, right. what was the outcome right. on the land? Not, okay. Yes. I grazed it this way. I planted these cover crops and blah, blah, blah. No, they're measuring the carbon. They're measuring the nutrient density of the food. They're all that, I think, rather than just being the, the thing I hate about organic, it's just a list of no's, right? You can't use this stuff. You can, you can only use a subset of tools. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes you, you need to have the metric wrenches in the toolbox, not, not cheat with the English wrenches. So yeah, the organic industry recognizes that it like the, the, the founders of the organic movement. And so Rodale, is got the regenerative organic uh, seal that they're working on and practices, and for sure, um, or organic is moving towards regenerative organic. And there are cases where someone is, like you said, has really good outcomes, but they might need to spray once. You know, uh, and I, I there was a farmer that is very famous. He goes out and talks all the time, and you know, he 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 had to he had to spray to desiccate his potato vines. And he, and he used a chemical because it just couldn't pencil out with it with an organic version. So there's some examples of that. Now we'd love to be, you know, all regenerative organic, but but it may not happen. Now there is there is a 
there are there are these these folks looking at is it practice based or is it yeah USDA has to grapple with this is it right, when you're right. going to pay farmers is it going to be for practices or outcomes and you know that there I agree with you I think outcomes is is going to be the way to go yeah, yeah. the key is is the measuring of the outcome right that, yeah that's why we don't have that when we come up with the sensors the technology to measure and it's getting closer and closer because we can measure all the metabolites now and residues and and, and that's right things that's right uh, we're we're so so much closer so uh, there there's one idea for you to run with Pam if you you know need two instead of just just one uh, startup opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned something about precision tech. There is a con in, in integrated pest management. There's a convergence of tech and bio. So biologicals are going to be enabled by uh, tech tools. Uh, Semios is a great example of that. So um, net farmers don't have to go out and put manually uh, put twist ties in the field anymore for pheromones or or monitor manually with their clipboard they can go right log right into their computer and then spray from their computer so so uh smart sprayers drone spraying um you know, all, all these all these types of uh, uh real-time spore monitoring for fungal diseases like uh, root applied sciences so there's going to be um a, so much technology applied to ipm that's going to help biologicals even more yeah yeah, and especially because, you know, current IPM, we're, we're hoping that we check the right parts of the field, too. Right, and right, right. That was one of the things we always wanted to, to develop, and we, we worked on that, was to get change over time images to see what parts of the field were differentiating from the mean different than others so that we could do smart scouting. And that yeah, and the, and the traditional uh, measures of IPM, so building the, the bugs up to a, a specific, specific threshold. threshold and then knocking it down, today's uh, products don't work that way. Right. So you're going to have to start earlier in a more preventative program and a, and a more season long holistic program rather than um, the, the traditional way we've done IPM. So that's a big lesson for the land grants. Um, hopefully exactly. they're learning that. Avoid the problem instead of, uh, you know, knock down the problem. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, it changes the timing and the thresholds. It does. It does. But like you said, technology is going to help that. Yep. So uh, Chestnut Bioadvisors uh, is a way to, to uh, follow up and, and stay in touch with you. What are other ways that uh, people can can uh, connect with you, Pam, and, and um, start yep. a conversation? PamMarone at gmail.com, but also most people come through the LinkedIn portal and uh and link with me there and uh that's how they find me and and we start a conversation and uh i talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and i always say the first hour is free <laughs> there you go that makes sense make the most of it yeah and then um what are what are something else i should have asked you today that i didn't get to well let's see um we talked about a lot um, a lot of fun we did. We talked about a lot. I'm not, I'm not finding, uh, I'm thinking um, that we talked about, I think, I think, you know, one of the key points is that, you know, we, we, as the, as the carbon credits are given to farmers and the payments to farmers for, for changing their practices. And as you said, getting certain outcomes, you know, it's really important that biologicals are there front and center in that conversation and don't get left out. So, you know, the industry is, is now immersed in that and making sure that, uh, um, you know, th there isn't locked in um, uh, processes and procedures that lock out biologicals. So I think that, that that's really critical right now. And I think yeah. like what you said with the biologicals are part of a system approach on the exactly side. The right. company, those biological companies also need to consider uh, maybe not them themselves, but having strategic partnerships with people on the output side 
then right. can drive the carbon credit value, can drive the minimal impact That's right. value back to the customer so that the farmer can earn more on a per acre basis. Exactly. Which then allows that biocontrol company to have the price point that they need to justify what they're doing. So it's it's kind of a three-way partnership. You got the output, the input, and, and the farmer together to to make all the everything rise together. And yes, I absolutely agree. You know, but this it's interesting this just one other one other thing to mention is that when you look at polls of farmers and their awareness of biologicals, it's still really low. It's surprisingly low. I think the last Farm Journal poll I saw was like half of the farmers um, either needed more education or were not aware. And I'm going like, oh my God. So we we still, you know, because because it's littered with small companies, even though there's a lot of big companies doing biologicals, their their largest business is chemicals or 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 uh, uh, seeds. And so, you know, the, 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 the awareness building is often left to the smaller companies or the trade groups. And so uh, we still have a lot of work to do to get the message out about the value of these products and that they can increase ROI. They can increase quality, nutrient density, um, uh, carbon footprint and, and all of these things. And, 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 and we still have a lot of work to do to get that message out. Well, I appreciate you helping us get that message out. <laughs> Uh, you know, fortunately, the farmers we get to work with understand that, but we don't get to work with everybody just yet, Pam. So there's there's more people to work with. So. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I certainly thank you for your time today. It's just amazing the path that you have blazed uh, for entrepreneurs, for uh, tech, you know, research scientists. Uh, what what you have done to accomplish what you've accomplished is is just very amazing. And um, I I thank you very much for what you've done for farmers, the ag industry, and for entrepreneurs. Well, thank you very much. It's really been fun. All right. You take care. Oh, we hope you enjoyed this podcast today. Seriously, Dr. Marone's work is fantastic, and her passion for constantly learning, evaluating, and exploring is both encouraging and energizing. It's just exciting to bring guests on the podcast with such passion and vision for their work. And you know, we're passionate here too about helping growers implement soil health practices. To learn more, check out our website at asn.farm and there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.